Well, good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to standing in front of Trump Tower and having your picture taken under that banner of The Apprentice. (laughs) By the way, I just want, in passing, I want to publicly thank uh, Donald Trump for adding to the aesthetic value of uh, Fifth Avenue with that fabulous uh, banner. It's really almost Dickensian. It's so charming. And uh, just wonderful to have somebody scowling at you from a building. So uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here tonight and to see all of you. Um, are we going to be okay on chairs before I get into this? There, there are, uh, anybody in the back, just so you know, there's a number of chairs over here. There's about 10 chairs and there's some scattered chairs in through here. And if maybe, uh, Ben Moore, uh, could get just, maybe just keep your eyes and we might need a few more because it looks like there are more people than we'd anticipated. But, uh, there are seats right up in front here, especially. There's a good grouping of them. Okay, so it is good to see you. Uh, We were having, as I mentioned to you, some of you over the email, we had some real problems with our uh, website and with our RSVP mechanism. So uh, it was very difficult. We didn't know how to tell, what to tell the club, how many people were going to be here, because so many people said I RSVP'd, but we had no record of it. So it got very, got very confusing, and I'm glad to see that you're all here, whether you uh, responded or didn't. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, as many of you already know, uh, the idea behind these events, these Socrates in the City events, comes from Socrates' famous maxim that the unexamined life is not worth living. It follows logically that the unexamined maxim is not worth remembering. So I think that the fact that this Socratic maxim has been remembered for low these 25 centuries means that it has been examined and found worth remembering. Although I'm not, I'm not sure if that's true because I really, I can't remember. Um, anyway, our thesis here at Socrates in the City is that the illustrious inhabitants of our fair city, that's us, are less likely to lead examined lives than people in other parts of the world principally because we New Yorkers are so very, very good at distracting ourselves with high-flying careers and low-flying entertainments. Uh, I'm not certain that this is true. I have no data, but it's the thesis, uh, and I will be sticking with this for the remainder of the evening. Uh, So please humor me. Um, In any case, over the last uh, five years, we have scoured the, the known world for brilliant thinkers who have led particularly examined lives, so that they might share the benefit of their examinations with us here in our unexamined berg, as it were. Uh, Of course, we have had inevitably to look far beyond New York City for these thinkers, the thesis again being that New Yorkers are by definition too successful and too distracted and too ambitious to ever attain the level of self-examination and philosophical brilliance necessary to address one of these August gatherings we like to call Socrates in the city. Uh, Gesundheit. Um, 
here at Socrates, we have had speakers uh, from everywhere but New York. We've had speakers from Boston. Actually, three of our speakers have come from Boston. Dr. Armand Nikolai, who uh, spoke on C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud, teaches at the Harvard Medical School. We had Dr. Thomas Howard on Chance of the Dance from St. John's Seminary in Boston. And we had the illustrious Dr. Peter Kraft, uh, who is a philosophy professor at Boston College. So three from Boston, none from New York. We have had three speakers from the Washington, D.C. area, David Aikman, uh, the journalist and senior, uh, former senior uh, editor at Time Magazine. We had Frederica Matthews-Green, of course, just a couple of months ago. And, of course, we have had Oz Guinness, who has spoken at something like eight Socrates events now. That is a world record, I believe, uh, which you may... Yes, which you may... Uh, See, now, if I, if I had that, uh, that punchline, uh, you would have stepped on it, you see. But lucky for you, Dawn, I did not have that punchline. So thank you, Miss Dawn Eden. Thank you. Um, Dawn writes for the New York Post, and she's interminably clever. Uh, headlines, I should say. Um, where was I? Yes, Oz Guinness, who has spoken at something like Eight, Socrates events, a world record, I believe, which you may easily corroborate with any good almanac. And yes, the Guinness Book of World Records also. Thank you. So to get back to wherever I was, we had speakers from Boston. We've had speakers from Washington, D.C. We've even had a speaker come to us from merry old England and not just an Englishman, but a bona fide knight of the British Empire, Sir John Polkinghorne. And by the way, he'll be back with us in November. Um, but as I say, we've never looked to our own here in Gotham for a Socrates speaker. Until tonight, my friends. You see, the presumption had been, as I said, that there simply did not exist a New Yorker of such brilliance and erudition and self-examination as to warrant an invitation to our happy Convocation. <laughs> Increase the peace. Uh, so that was my presumption, and, I, and dare I say the presumption of more folks than would care to admit, some of them perhaps in this very room. But on behalf of all those whose presumption that was, let me tonight say that in the person of Dr. Paul Vitz, we present our admission of error and our most profound apologies. That's right. Hard as it is to fathom, Dr. Paul Vitz is that extraordinarily rare New Yorker who is able to live, indeed thrive, amidst the inescapable din and the infinite enticements of this great city, and yet to be a self-examined soul. And for this, my fellow New Yorkers, I think he deserves some kind of prize. Unfortunately, we have absolutely no prizes to give away tonight, save one, that being an attentive audience, which is to say... All of you. Yes, you, ladies and gentlemen, are that prize of which I speak. Doesn't that make you feel good? Perhaps it just makes you feel cheap, I know. Um, in any case, uh, that's the situation. And so now a word of introduction on our indigenous speaker, Dr. Paul Vitz. Uh, Dr. Vitz, as I say, lives right here in the belly of the unexamined beast <laughs> that is New York City. He is a professor of psychology at NYU, which is also located 
in that same unexamined beast's belly. Dr. Vitz is a senior scholar at the Institute for Psychological Sciences, and he is the author of hundreds of articles and many books, among them Psychology as Religion, The Cult of Self-Worship, Faith of the Fatherless, The Psychology of Atheism. He'll be touching on that thesis today, among other things. Uh, Sigmund Freud's Christian Unconscious, another fascinating thesis, and Modern Art and Modern Science, The Parallel Analysis of Vision. Uh, most of these books are available at our book table at a reasonable discount, and I'm sure Dr. Vitz will be happy to autograph them for you if you ask nicely. After all, he's a New Yorker, so you don't want to push it. Um, Dr. Vitz lives here in New York, as I say, in Greenwich Village with his wife, who is also a professor uh, at NYU of French. They have six children, and I would assume that this alone gives Dr. Vitz all the credentials he needs to say something worth hearing on the subject of fatherhood. Uh, fatherhood is one of those subjects that seems, at least for my lifetime anyway, to be, I would say, somewhat neglected. Uh, we hear about motherhood a lot these days, but fatherhood seems somehow uh, to have gone, shall we say, out of vogue. And the happy images that we would get of fatherhood from such past movies as Life with Father and such TV series as Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver, however unrealistic they might have been, nonetheless had their fingers on the idealized essence of fatherhood, and I think it's safe to say those images could be reassuring in a good way. But the four-decade backlash against these images sometimes gives us a uh, contemporary view of fatherhood that on the fictional side would be, you know, Al Bundy and Homer Simpson, um, and on the non-fictional side would give us something like, you know, for example, Michael Jackson hanging Jr. over the balcony rail at a fancy high-rise hotel, um, not exactly kind of thing Andy Griffith or Robert Young would have done. Uh, he certainly would have made his, not ch made his children wear masks, you know. But in any case, uh, things have changed, and uh, I think some of these changes make me long for what Dr. Vitz has to say on the subject of fatherhood, whatever that will be. Uh, so a brief word on our format, very brief. Dr. Vitz will speak for about 35 or 40 minutes. After that, we will have a good amount of time for questions and answers. After that, more music, more wine, more hors d'oeuvres. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Paul Vitz. Trust New York to come up with an introduction like that. I mean, really. Um, it is true I'm a New Yorker. I've lived here now for almost uh, almost 40 years. And um, whether I'm up to all those adjectives, that's another thing for you to judge later. I'm not so sure. But I hope to hold up uh, Manhattan in this uh, list of speakers. It's um, not just a pleasure to be here. It's also a challenge. I don't think I've ever addressed an audience of the kind that you were described as and that it looks like you really are. I met some of you beforehand. You come from different countries. Some of you have very odd names. Some of you have very familiar names. But uh, I expect there's a, a little bit of the world here tonight, not just um, uh, New York in a parochial sense. <clears throat> what I'm going to talk about is the general theme of, of fatherhood, and I think that I, I can show with a few uh, 
comments and analysis that the crisis of our culture today is in many respects, uh, as we admit, a crisis in the family, in the family structure, but at the center of the crisis in the family is a crisis in what it is to be a father. And that we've lost this understanding of really the capstone, in my judgment, of what it is to be a man. Because I think all men are called to be fathers. Now, I don't necessarily mean they're called to be biological fathers. I mean they're called to be fathers toward the younger people in their, in their life. But I want to um, introduce that with a, a, a remark that comes from the, the ancient Hebrew scriptures where they say that the sins of the fathers go on for generations, sometimes for three or perhaps for seven. But it's interesting that they only talk, as far as I know, about the sins of the fathers being perpetuated into society. Now, I don't want to suggest that mothers aren't capable of, uh, shall we say, sinning or not being good mothers. But there's something very profoundly true about that observation. First of all, I think mothers are much more reliable at being mothers than fathers are at fathers. So to much, you know, there are many, many more good enough mothers, relatively speaking. So they're less likely, I think, to be causing damage to their children. I know there are exceptions. After all, I've done psychotherapy and I've heard the, you know, people who've had trouble with their mothers and so on. But in general, they're much more reliable at being mothers than fathers are at being fathers. Second, if a mother is not reliable, usually it shows up very soon with the, when the child is young. And other women, the grandmother, the, the sister, uh, some other woman who observes it steps in and you find substitute mothers and foster mothers coming in quickly if the mother is one of those who is very uh, unsatisfactory. And finally, there's another reason why this comment from the Jewish scriptures, I think, is correct. And that is, if a mother, if, if the mother really fails, and there's nobody else to pick it up, if, the mother, if mothering fails with the child, the child is usually so damaged that they can't pass their sins on to anybody. That is, they're not out there functioning. They may be withdrawn, they may be in a mental institution, they may be so frightened or anxious or what have you. So if the mothering really fails because, let's say, or they may have gone into some sort of socially self-destructive mode, where they, um, where, that is the child when they got a little bit older. So in a certain sense, the sins of the mothers, which are much less likely, are also, even if they do occur, less likely to be passed on into the generations ahead. And so they speak of the sins of the fathers. And here, what happens is something like this. The child has a good enough mother, and then the father comes along and the father fails in some way. He's an alcoholic. 
He abandons. He runs off with other women or lots of different ways. In fact, we learn tonight that one of the tragic ways in which a father can fail when the child is young is simply to die. And the child can feel abandoned. There are ways to overcome this to some degree, but many of the, some of the people will look at their failed father was a dead father. And what the father's major function, I guess, if you want to, I'll talk about some of the data later. But the father is a kind of Mr. Outside. And the mother forms the basic character, the emotional life, the interpersonal responsiveness of the child, much more than the father. But the father introduces the child much more often to the outside world. The father symbolizes the structure of that world, of law and order, of of the activities, of the things that when you leave the home you get involved in. And what happens when the child is reasonably functioning because of a good enough mother but a bad father is they get out in that world and they cause a lot of trouble because the father hasn't been there. And in fact, in social science, probably the most reliably documented piece of evidence is the effect of bad fathering on children in terms of social pathological indices. It's unbelievable. It's been around for over 50 years in extremely substantial ways. I'll read a little bit in summary of what some of these things are. Researchers have found that the father makes major contributions to the child's development, especially to individual identity and social identity. The father helps the child to separate psychologically from the mother, teaches the child much more to control its impulses, especially in the case of small boys and older boys as well. The father serves as a buffer, a buffer from the mother's attention and from being overly emotionally bound to the mother, which often happens when the mother has no one else to really get involved with because her, the father has abandoned her. The father is very instrumental in the development of the intellectual life and the outside activities of the child in their respect for the outside world in terms of law and order. The most common finding is the tendency to criminality in boys and young men who didn't have fathers. It's so common. It's a cliche. Over and over again, our prisons are filled with young men who didn't have functioning fathers. This is the commonest response. They have this anger, this lack of, of, uh, of, uh, of understanding of the outside world, of how to, con how to deal with it, a rage against it, often a kind of incompetence in dealing with it that leads to an anger and a rage, and it shows. And they get in trouble pretty quickly, and they run into a bunch of other young men like themselves, and pretty soon you've got a gang and things of that kind. By the way, with a father as present, your children end up, the children end up with higher cognitive capacities, higher IQs. One of the things that's characteristic of when the father is in the family, the children get better jobs. They're more likely to be employed. 
more likely to uh, make money and succeed. And this is true for both the boys and the girls. One of the, there's something we've all heard about, something that's sometimes called the Mozart effect. I'm not talking about the effect of the music on your head, but that there's the effect of Mozart's father. Mozart was the product of his father's devoted attention, perhaps a little bit too intense. But history is filled with children like that. There's Pascal, whose father spent his time at home schooling young, the young genius. There's John Stuart Mill with his father, John Mill. At age three, he was learning Greek. His father focused on him. We have, in the athletic world today, we have, um, we have Tiger Woods. We have, you know, lots of these outstanding athletes. You look, Michael Jordan, he talks about his father as having helped him, as having modeled for him, as having led him. And when it isn't a father, it's a coach, a substitute father. Many times young women who are very successful have the same thing. They have this strong sense that their father is with them. They've, and has broken the, the barriers down for them. Uh, I don't know all of the examples. One I just saw, I'm sure it must be related. I, this was in a little New York scene I, I, I read in the paper about uh, a few months ago. There's, a, I think, I'm, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing all the names right, but I think there's, there's a very uh, successful, wealthy New Yorker, I think it was head of Citibank or Citigroup called Sandy Weil or something like that. All right. Well, I, what? Okay, and uh, I've never met him. I mean, I've, anyway, uh, and there was a little note, and there was a picture of him with his daughter. And they were smiling and next to each other, and his daughter had just had her first IPO. <laughs> and he was right there with her, you know. And, and this is one of the things that fathers do for their children. The criminality thing, as I said, is the major way in which failed fathers uh, pass on their sins to the next generation. There are plenty of poor environments where the fathers are present and there's no criminality. They've done a lot, you know, we think of criminal behavior as somehow related to, you know, ghettos or inner city or something like that. When they... when they take out, when the social scientists take out whether the father's present and the whole issue of that stability of the family structure, there are no ethnic, racial, linguistic, cultural factors related to criminal behavior. It's family structure. And the crucial family person that isn't there is the father. Because look at the job the mother has when the father's not there. She's got to try to keep this, this family together. She has to make money. Now, maybe she makes it through welfare or maybe she has a job. Either way, there's a big price to pay for the, for the children. It's hard. I can tell you it's very hard to raise kids. And you need at least two adults. And it's nice to have the roles differentiated. And they're not going to be always differentiated in the same way. There'll be generally some common things and then... You know, men and women being complicated, there are a lot of overlap, and there'll be variations on the theme, and so on. The only reliable thing that fathers do, with about 99% of all women have stated this, is to take out the garbage. 
<laughs> it's the single most common task that they're assumed to take. Anyway, but, you know, other than that, you know, maybe the man will be in charge of finances, but maybe not. Uh, sometimes I have one son who said, I could never control my money. I, I hope I marry a woman who could. So sometimes you, you have to, you know, you trade off. But the need for two and the fact that the father, because he represents authority, a lot of his authority is just in the fact, you know, you have to remember children are, you have to remember what it's like to be that little. And your father is big and he's sort of scary. His voice is a little scary. His chin, you know, his, he's got a beard and he's scratchy and he smells more. Uh, well, you know, both, you know, maybe he smokes or does, you know, but also other things, you know. And, and when he looks at you and shouts, you shape up. You're scared. You realize, you know. And you figure maybe your mom, you can always count on her, you know. We'll see if we can <laughs> wiggle out of this one. But, you know. So, that's part of his function, and it's a very important one where the boy learns limits and discipline, and he learns the meaning of self-control. And he, he learns it not just because his father tries to teach him that, but because his father shows it. So, as a kind of introduction to my next topic, I'd like to say that what we have in our society now has been a failure of fatherhood. Now, there's some evidence, not on the television sets yet, but there's some evidence of a revival of a concern, of an intellectual interest in fatherhood. And the Fatherhood Initiative, various books on it are coming out from various intellectuals and think tanks and so forth. And what we're trying to do is to, to rediscover intellectually what was known in the past intuitively and was just part of tradition. And modernism is often about challenging tradition. And as we leave into a new era, and I don't, postmodernism is the end of modernism. It's not a new era. I have a name for it, for what it's worth. I call it transmodern. We're moving into something where we're going to rediscover the, the validity of a lot of our traditional understanding, but we're going to discover it intellectually. We're going to discover it through the, the language of today, which is science and investigation and so forth. We're going to understand why these traditions evolved and were solid, but they, people couldn't speak about them. And I think we're going to slowly recover an understanding of fathers. And I think it's very important for individual men to have this understanding because this Fatherhood is the way a man fulfills his manhood. And if you think you're fulfilled as a man because you're living like James Bond, you're out of your mind. You know, he's a guy without any bonds with anyone. Maybe I'm dating myself. James Bond is... Pe Do people still watch James Bond? I don't know, you know. Uh, uh, okay, but you know, I mean, and there's a lot of good fun with it. We do too, you know. Our kids, we have a couple of them. Anyway, but the point is, you got to go beyond that. You got to go beyond that. And it comes from being able, as a man, to help to sacrifice for others. 
And the world is hungry for any examples of it. For non-selfish men. I'll come back to that. Now I want to get to a related topic, which I began uh, coming across about 10 years ago or so. I was doing some work on the lives of famous atheists, just reading them and so on and so forth. And over and over, I kept finding bad relationships with their fathers. And I said, hey, maybe there's something going on here. And... And then I came across, of all things, a comment by Sigmund Freud, which I'll slightly paraphrase. I mean, it's almost identical. But he said, nothing is more common for a young person to lose their faith in God when they lose their respect for their father. That was Sigmund Freud. And, you know, he never followed that up. He just, you know, one of these sort of uh, brilliant um, uh, cast-asides. And he then went on to say that our psychological approach to God in the West is often through, first, our own psychological relationship to our Father. And so if, if God's like our Father, and our Father is a son of a bitch, you don't want to have anything to do with him in plain and simple language. But it's interesting to look at the lives of these famous atheists. And they often had... I mean, you have to remember, these were, this was affecting them when they were children. And a child only wants his father to love him and to be there. And when he's treated differently, this can set in, in motion a long-term resentment. Here are some of the examples. I, I mean, I looked at almost all of what I thought were the famous atheists. Um, perhaps the best example, which was, well, not, well, here's one example. Um, well, let's see, what order do I want to take them in? Uh, Well, here's an interesting one. Let's take Feuerbach. Maybe you've never heard of Feuerbach. He was a German philosopher who wrote his uh, atheistic works in the um, 1840s, very influential uh, with Karl Marx, uh, who just gobbled him up. Feuerbach argued that God didn't exist and that God was a projection of human psychological uh, concerns of various types. He obviously was ahead of Freud. Well, what was Feuerbach's childhood like? Well, he was married. Uh, his, his father and mother were married. They had a family, a number of children. And his father was a famous jurist, lawyer, uh, professor at a nearby university, and so on. Um, when this boy was 12 or 13, and this is now in the 1820s, a very much more conservative environment, but even today, imagine this happening to your own family. When he was 12 or 13, young Feuerbach, his father abandoned the family, 
took up living with another woman in a, a village uh, not too far away. The other woman was the wife of, of his father's best friend. He lived with this woman a number of years. I don't know what the best friend what was doing about all this. That isn't in the biographies. And then he had a child by this woman. Now, this would have been an enormous scandal. Everyone would have been talking about it and known about it. He was a prominent person. And it was a clear rejection and abandonment of the family. After about three years or so, um, the woman he was living with died. So, senior Feuerbach came back to the family to live. Young Feuerbach's mother must have been a very patient and <laughs> kind woman. I don't know. Oh, I don't, they don't say anything about the bare facts. They don't talk about what was the psychology like of living with that. This man was also had a nickname, the senior Feuerbach, the father of this future atheist. Um, by the, time, by the time this happened, uh, young Feuerbach was probably uh, just out of high school or the gymnasium then. And this senior Feuerbach had a nickname. It was Vesuvius. He obviously blew up and exploded and did things like that all the time. He sounds like a real nice guy. Okay. Well, this, this rejection... All right, so one atheist, one bad father. So let's look at a few more. Um, we could look at uh, Schopenhauer, another one. Here's Schopenhauer. They're all, the situations are all very different, but there's this element in them. Schopenhauer had a very bad relationship with his mother. His mother was nasty to him all his life and said, I didn't want you and you ruined my life. Um, but the parents uh, were well-to-do. Um, the father was a merchant and well-to-do. They traveled. They went to England. But most of the time they traveled without young Schopenhauer. And Schopenhauer was left at home with a nanny here and a nanny there. And then at age, you know, that's how, you know, it's not the rich anymore. I mean, it's not the poor. It's the rich as well who abandon their children. And then for about two or three years, they stayed in the same place for a while, and he had a nice relationship with his father. And then his father left again when they went to another country. And then at age 16, um, and this is in Europe, by the way, in uh, Scandinavia, and uh, Schopenhauer comes back and is... Uh, starting business again, and he has young Schopenhauer, who's 16 years old, um, working with him. And then his father commits suicide. Um, it was a he, he talks about how devastated he was by that, the feeling of abandonment. This is one of the things about suicide that is so profound. And that people sometimes who are committing suicide never seem to factor in the feeling of rejection and of hostility and abandonment that they create in the lives of those around them. It was shortly after that that Schopenhauer became famous for being the great pessimist. How about some others? Let's take Hobbes. 
He was probably an atheist, probably one of the first. It was a little dangerous politically at that time to be an atheist. So he kind of covered his tracks and said, oh, I'm a materialist. Uh, and then wouldn't talk so much. But he was almost certainly uh, uh, an atheist. When he was a, a boy, quite young, his father was an Anglican uh, clergyman. But who wasn't a very good one. He was famous for falling asleep in his own services. <laughs> and he also had an irascible uh, temper. And when... When um, Hobbes was probably uh, the best we could find out, I could find it was around three or four. Um, his father had a fight in front of the uh, in front of the small church with uh, a, another visiting clergyman and knocked him down and did all you know really tore him apart. And then he fled and was never seen again by the family. So the father abandoned again. Um, Hobbes is rather well known for his anti-clerical sentiments. In addition to being, if you will, uh, uh, probably an atheist in the sense of his own philosophy would heavily suggest that. There are many others. We, uh, Freud himself fits his own model. Freud uh, did not respect his father. He saw his father as weak. As first of all, he saw his father as sort of religious, sort of a general, um, somewhat liberal, enlightenment Jew. But he saw his father as weak in, in a number of ways. First, all of his biographers are aware of the fact that uh, Sigmund Freud saw his father as um, weak in response to anti-Semitism. A famous incident in which his father was walking down the street and uh, someone who called his father a dirty Jew knocked his hat off. And, you know, essentially, you know, gave him the big challenge. And Sigmund said, well, what did you do, Dad? He says, oh, I just picked up my hat and walked away. And Freud writes that in his, some of his biographical material. And it was clear that it just really, Sigmund Freud was a complicated man, a difficult man. But he was also a courageous man, and he admired uh, bravery. And when he saw his own father do this, whoops. In addition, in two letters that Sigmund Freud has written, uh, in, during the 1990s, when he was in the midst of his own personal psychoanalysis that was going to turn into the founding of psychoanalysis, he wrote to a, a colleague of his in Berlin that his father was a, uh, was a sexual pervert. And these, this, the fact that he was a pervert was deleted from the original publication of the letters. But now that the letters in their unexpurgated version have come out, now we don't know what this meant. He said that symptoms of this, his father's sexual perversion, he said, could be seen with his younger sisters. I don't know. But if your father's, uh, in your own judgment, I, you know, I don't want to condemn even... Freud's father, but in, in, in Freud's judgment, it's clear he saw his father as sexually uh, some kind of pervert and as a coward. Now, that's a, a good way. To, you can summarize that as l losing respect. <laughs> and that would be the basis, presumably, for his own comment. Because much of Freud's psychology, I can assure you, is an expression of his own psychology. <laughs> that is, 
Whether it's true for everyone else is not so clear, but it's certainly true for him. Here are some others. Um, let's take Voltaire. Voltaire was probably not an atheist. He was probably a deist, but, you know, it was kind of hard to tell. We do know that Voltaire really disliked his father. He's, in his letters, he never said anything nice about him, said lots of nasty things. And, of course, the crucial thing that Voltaire did is he rejected his father's name. And the name Voltaire, he invented. He gave himself his own name. I don't want to be connected to my father and his family. And his name. I, I'm called Voltaire. And everybody knows him by that name, but no one knows quite where the name came from. There's some doubt. It's also sort of interesting to me that the first play that Voltaire ever wrote as a young man in his 20s that was published, he wrote one before, but it wasn't published, as far as I know. It was called Oedipus. And it was a, and it was a thinly disguised description of the redoing of the Oedipus myth in the context of killing God and killing the king. The king being a good father figure that if you're mad at your father, you can also be hostile toward There are other examples we could go on. Uh, one of the most powerful, rich examples is with Nietzsche, whose father died when he was four and he never really got over it. When Nietzsche said, God is dead, he was really saying, Dad is dead. And he never said that his atheism was a rational thing. He said he knew it by instinct. His own unconscious mind knew it. But his father, he saw his father's death as an abandonment. And he died a sick, his father became, became sickly over two or three years and then died. And he talks about this in his memoirs and autobiographical material a great deal. It was a major event in his life. And he had no other men in his family to come in to be substitute fathers. Now I'll mention two more uh, contemporary figures. Um, one is Madeline Murray O'Hare. Most of you know about Madeline Murray O'Hare, I think. Maybe she's now fading, but she was the woman, she was president of the American Atheist Society and uh, was the woman responsible for getting prayer out of the public schools in the 60s, I think. And we have a little bit about her background, and uh, one of her sons wrote about Madeline's relationship with her father and said that he was a witness to Madeline, his mother, picking up a 10-inch butcher knife and, and uh, challenging her father and saying, I want to kill you, I want to dance on your grave. Wow. Now, we don't know what was responsible for that, but in general, daughters do not want to do that. They don't want to have that relationship with their father. Presumably, there was something that caused that, and there's no hint one way or the other about what it might have been. There are others as well. Um, besides Nietzsche, Sartre, D'Alembert, um, Hume, Bertrand Russell, uh, there are a bunch of others that fit the pattern of the dead father and of the absence of any substitute father to come in. There was one interesting case that took place here in, uh, with a New Yorker. I don't know if you know, there's a, a very successful Ameri uh, New York psychologist named Albert Ellis. Uh, he, I think he's probably 80 or something now. He has his own institute here in the city, and he's a real New Yorker. That is, he was born and raised in New York. 
and he founded a school of psychology called, uh, well, Rational Emotive uh, and Cognitive Therapy. It's a kind of rational or cognitive therapy uh, aimed at changing your thoughts and with it your emotions. And it's been very influential. He has uh, very much earned, I think, his reputation in a positive way. I knew nothing about him. I just happened to be at a place where we were both speaking, and I, while he was there, sitting over <laughs> there or there, I forget now, I summarized some of my evidence that bad fathers have been an emotional contributor to the lives of many atheists. And he heard me. He was arguing against, he was, a, he was an atheist arguing against uh, belief in God, and I was giving an, a critique of, not exactly a critique, but an interpretation of some of the motives behind the atheists. In other words, it's not just believers who might have a motive for believing in God. Unbelievers can have a motive for not believing. And I spelled out the, 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 what I called the bad father hypothesis. After the, uh, we'd both finished speaking, we left and walked uh, t- sort of together as we, we, we uh, left the uh, podium. And he looked at me and he said, well, that's interesting. But, you know, I had a good relationship with my father. And I said, well, a psychological hypothesis is not, you know, it's not 100%. It's always, a, you know, if you're right for 30 or 40% of the time, you're, you know, if you found a factor that works that's good. Okay, I come back to New York. This was not, the talk wasn't here. And uh, I'd written it up as a paper, and a friend of mine who was an editor asked me about it. And uh, he said, send it to me, will you? You know, editors are always you know, looking for something uh, that they might be able to publish or whatever. So I sent it to him. He was a good friend, and he read it. And about a month later, he, we were talking again, and he says, oh, by the way, Paul, I, I, you know, that paper you wrote, uh, you know, it fits Albert Ellis perfectly. And I said, George, this can't be. He heard me read that, or most of it, and he said he had a good relationship with his father. And he said, well, look, Paul, last, we're publishing his biography. And last night I was reading the page proofs, or, you know. And he says, go read it. So I read it. Young Albert and his brother were abandoned. His mother was sort of mentally not functioning very well. And while the father was still living here, there was a, here in New York in the 20s and 30s, um, the father uh, was a philanderer, played around, wasn't around very much, and then after a while completely abandoned the family. And once in a while he'd see him on the street or something like that. And young Albert and his brother toughed it out. And they took care of their mother. They, he put himself through city university, you know, through school, ended up getting a Ph.D. And Albert Ellis is one of the classic tough old-fashioned New Yorkers. He grew up on the street, but he's a very smart intellectual, too, but it's a very unusual combination, and probably doesn't happen much anymore. But he couldn't but have been angry. If you imagine his late 20s, early 30s, depression coming on. 
Your father isn't there. He's abandoned you. He's with other women, and he's, once in a while you see him. A, a kid of 12, 10, 8, when this is starting on through, you're going to be enraged. This is not what you're supposed to do. So those are some of the examples. On the negative side, I, I also there are other people that I, I, I could put in here. I, I referred to some of them. D'Alembert, uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, and a good number of others. I, I know some psychologists that fit moderately well, but they aren't basically just atheists. They were psychologists more than anything else. <laughs> But then I looked at, I tried to make up a control group. And the control group was to look for famous theists during the same period of time, historically. These were people who were intelligent philosophers arguing the case for God. In general, they lost, you know, the battle intellectually, but they they stood up and argued cogently and well, and some of their arguments are now being refurbished with amazing significance. But the first one was Pascal at a time of great skepticism about God, and he had a father, he was deep, his mother died when he was three, and his father homeschooled him, that wasn't the term they used then, but you know, uh, he stayed at home, and the father educated young Pascal and his sister, hour after hour, year after year. Um, other examples of that, uh, G.K. Chesterton, he said, you know, I had a happy childhood. I'm sorry to disappoint all the people looking for problems in people's lives, but I had a happy childhood. And one of the reasons he had such a good one was his father didn't like the business he was in, so he stayed home a lot. (laughs) His father, I think, was in real estate or something, and he didn't like it, so he stayed home and spent time with his kids. He played with them, and they made up games, and they read, and they, yeah, I guess you'd say they bonded. But here are some others who had good fathers, um, in addition, one was Edmund Burke. Not, his father was pretty good, but he also had a substitute father, an uncle, who was very important to him. And this is something to keep in mind. Nietzsche didn't have a substitute father. Freud didn't. But Burke had an uncle that he, was, he went down and lived with him and was devoted to him in all his life, said, this was the best man I've ever known. Another example is... Um, Wilberforce, the great evangelical um, um, English Protestant who was responsible for getting rid of slavery in England, the first country to, to ban it. He spent his whole life with that theme. Now, when young Wilberforce was nine years old, he had a sort of normal family, uh, and his father died. And the mother didn't know quite what to do. They were... I I don't know whether they were Anglican or Church of Scotland or what, but they sent young, their their boy, young Wilberforce, off to live with an aunt and uncle who were, I think they were Methodists. They were called enthusiasts um, at the time. And he went and lived with them for a couple of years. And one of the people that he met there who was a close friend of his aunt and uncle, was a man by the name of John Newton. Now, I don't know if you know who John Newton was, but he wrote a very famous song called Amazing Grace. 
But John Newton had been a slaver, captain of a slaving boat. And he'd become a Christian and had put all that aside. And amazing grace was about the transformation. And that's where young Wilberforce learned about the issue of slavery. When he was 12, 13, 14. And then his mother got all upset because this enthusiastic religious environment was bothering her and she brought him back. And young Wilberforce said he wept like he was leaving his his father and mother. And then he was a well-to-do young man. He went to, I don't know whether it was Oxford or Cambridge, but one of them, you know, and did very well. And then at age 20, he decided to run for the parliament. He did. One at age 20 or 21. (laughs) Here he is, you know. (laughs) And he was there the rest of his life, and he worked. And and then he had a kind of secondary religious um, reevaluation in his 20s, and this is what he picked up on. This is his theme. So that's Wilberforce. And Wilberforce himself had five sons, four of whom became clergymen. And we have his letters to um, uh, Bishop Wilberforce, in which they're the most moving letters about how he would pray for his son and could hardly wait to see him. And at certain hours of the day for each child, he would set aside to reflect about them. And there, these came over, you know, it wasn't one letter. It came you know, month after month over the years. There, there are volumes of these things. Deeply devoted to his children. Another one with a, with a good father was Thomas Reed, one of the great Scottish philosophers. I mentioned Chesterton. There are some others in here, too. Moses Mendelssohn. He's our first Jewish philosopher on the theist side. Well, he had a good relationship with his father, and he, he took, he, he named, his name is Mendelssohn. He took the name Mendelssohn. His father's name was Mendel. Not like Voltaire. He took it. In addition, in many of these uh, Jewish theists, they had a lot of rabbis and other um, scholars around who were father figures for them and, and gave them a kind of enormous uh, positive view of what it was to be a father. The same thing with Martin Buber, who had uh, a substitute father and his grandfather particularly, uh, and others. Another final example is Walker Percy. I'm jumping around a lot. I'm not dealing with philosophers, of course. But Walker Percy, the novelist, um, he had a lot of odds against him. His uh, grandfather committed suicide. And then his father was subject to depression, was sent away to a mental institution. This was down in, uh, in the south, I think in Alabama, but, you know, in the, really, in the deep south. And then his, and his father committed suicide with a gun. And so now he's with his brother and his mother. And his mother, after a few years after the father's death, the mother is killed in an auto accident where suicide is suspected. Young uh, Walker is sort of adopted by his uncle. And his uncle devoted his life to Walker Percy and his uh, brother. His, his uncle was a, 
business, a small bit time businessman and a poet, a great reader of literature, and they, he, he, he devoted his life to those two boys. And the result was we, we got a novelist instead of maybe another suicide or maybe, uh, you know, or, or whatever. So the point I'm trying to make is that fathers have enormous impact on the religious uh, emotional sentiments uh, of their children. And there are also cases where you have a religious father who's... Uh, who's really, I mean, not just abandons, but you can have a religious father who's a kind of hostile, angry, you know, who's, who's wor- who, who talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk. And that very commonly causes rejection of the faith of their father. It's not, and even in things like minister's sons, which was one, my father was one, they... When the when they when the minister sort of neglects his own family, a lot of resentment develops, and it can lead to lots of minister's sons becoming atheists, skeptics, agnostics. And ironically, um, so therefore, ironically, you're living. We, I, I want to give now one example of an atheist father who was a good father, and his son, and what happened. Uh, this is John Mill and John Stuart Mill. John Mill was very militantly atheist. I t- couldn't find out much about him. There was only one biographical reference that said his father was probably an alcoholic, but that wasn't substantial enough. To... But John Mill was a very serious atheist, and he was devoted to his boy. So he taught him atheism intellectually, but he showed him love and support. So the two messages were coming at cross purposes. Just like, on the other hand, when you have a minister who talks God and love and acts like the devil. And the result was, John Stuart Mill wrote almost in his lifetime, wrote, he published nothing about religion. And when it finally came out, some of his works, they thought it was going to be, you know, another militant atheist. But he was, he was not pro-religious, but he was really rather tolerant and rather open and rather a a rational man in the genuine sense of the term without this underlying uh, agenda. So getting back to our our fathers now, this is, if you're going to uh, take away any message, it's that your importance in the forming of the implicit religious life of uh, of your children is, 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 is clear here. And that many an atheist was damaged. And that's one of the reasons for his hostility to God and the church and the clergy and all of that has been negative personal relationships. They may give you a rational reason. And some atheists are really good at, you know, it's a rational issue. It's about skepticism and intellectual life. But for many others, there's an emotional substrate, an irrational component, certainly there was with Nietzsche, that's really guiding them. And this, then, I think, as we look at the criminal activities, that we look at the, the other kinds of things that can happen, when fathers are dysfunctional, we can see how they pass sin, their sins on to the next generation. And I think this should be a call to, to, to men to rediscover 
what fatherhood is about. And it is about helping other people, about leading them in a self-sacrificing way. It's about self-sacrifice. And that's the only way you earn genuine respect. And when men do that, the public responds. The wife responds. The children respond. Here at 9-11, one of the reasons we responded so strongly to the firemen and their deaths was we saw self-sacrifice by manly men who weren't in it for the money, weren't in it like the CEO who needs to have enough money to be able to work for his company. They weren't in it for themselves. And so all these jaded New Yorkers at 9-11 would sit and applaud When the, when the firemen went by. So this is what the world wants, and this is what fathers are called to be. And unless you, we can reduce, and, 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 and you know, it's not an issue of changing the country or anything like that. You want to change your own life. This is the way to live. This is the way to live the better life as an adult man, being some kind of father. And, you know, you can, find, you can find people to be father to outside of your family, and hopefully that's where you, you focus. But, you know, if you're now a grandfather, I'm a grandfather now. I'm getting to be a geezer. But the, <laughs> the point is, there are plenty of people who need it and who need your help and need your support. And when you're through with it, not only will they be happy and, and much better for it, so will you. Thanks. To think he was in New York City right under our noses for these four years, it makes no sense. Uh, we have some time for questions and uh, answers. If you can make your way to that microphone, I would be personally delighted. Um, we also uh, have the sort of, what's it called, the door prize, the raffle. If you, uh, if you have your red tickets at the end of the question and answer thing, uh, we will award you four books and uh, a CD. Um, but uh, anyway, it's very important, folks, since we don't have a ton of time, that you keep your questions in the form of a question. <laughs> and please keep them under 30 seconds. I'm not kidding because it's important to uh, respect other people's time. So, Dawn, go ahead. Uh, thank you for a wonderful talk. Um, I can understand how the message of self-sacrifice is one that uh, people hearing it can put into effect uh, right away as, as fathers. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how your findings may be used by people who are evangelizing to atheists. I guess I would say this. Um, Many atheists, as I've said, are really greatly disappointed in what the meaning of God and fathers are for their life. And, it's, and, for, and that's the only way you can deal with that emotional bias. Not the, some of them, and in addition, you know, there's an intellectual issue here, too. That's the separate thing. And, and, and you know, I, by the way, I was an atheist for 20 years, so I'm not hostile to atheists in that sense. I... <laughs> Uh, so, but uh, 
the way is to show them, I would say, if you show them a, a good father figure. Somebody who is clearly not in it for themselves. They're in it in a self-sacrificial way. And we have lots of models in the faith of that. Perhaps that was one of the meanings of the passion. I don't know. But, you know. But the, the point is, meeting people who demonstrate what they didn't have. Now, sometimes you can challenge them in a different way. This, this occurred once with one man who had had a very bad, nasty father and was very resentful of it, and, but was now married and had, uh, I think, three or four children. And I, I gave him the challenge. I said, okay, be the father you never had. And in doing that, you get what you didn't originally get. But it, it, it's about, I mean, it's about showing self-sacrificial love. It's about, that's what it is, and you have to show it. And we need a culture that gives more examples of this. We know that. We have, you know. But you don't have to worry about the culture. You, you can start right at home. Thank you so much. Follow up on the theme of self-sacrifice, and uh, you mentioned courage and heroism and the um, firefighters. And um, I've seen this in a lot of military families: is that the um, the father was a hero, and the children will replicate that heroism, and the grandchildren will replicate that heroism, and so on. And I'm just wondering uh, if you have any thoughts on the way this positive reinforcement happens within a family and how it's also connected with personal recklessness because there is an element of recklessness in courage and heroism. Those are tough questions. Um, As far as the modeling in the family goes, one thing, for example, I knew one um, family where the... um, the father had died. And, you know, some of these atheists, that had happened too. And so there's a question of how the death is treated in the family. I mean, how the father is treated. And it's important, and a number of widows that I've talked to who were aware of this, it was important that when the father had been a good man, that they kept, although he was dead, he, for whatever reason, accident or in war or whatever, or illness, that they kept his memory alive as being good. That it was very important that he not be seen as an invisible, as a, as a kind of whatever, you know, negative um, understanding. And this kept it. And this happens in military families, too, because of the, the death rate. The issue of recklessness, the kind, what we mean by bravery, is a special topic. I don't know enough about it to say anything I think useful. Well, you mentioned a number of names. Um, I've done a lot of miscellaneous reason, reading. 
<clears throat> not spending my time more constructively in pool halls. So, um, what do you think of Kierkegaard, um, Francis of Assisi, and Anna Freud? You know, the first two had bad relations with their fathers, and Anna Freud was, you know, totally, as you, I'm sure you know, totally devoted to her father. I could even throw St. Augustine in. He had a terrible relationship with his father, but uh, St. Augustine. Well, one of their, there's always the, with Kierkegaard, I could get, I wrote a whole chapter or section on Kierkegaard, and it's clear that when Kierkegaard had a falling out when he was about 17 or 18, just as he was going to college with his father, he lost his faith. And it was with the resolution of his father shortly before his father died that Kierkegaard um, came back to the faith and explicitly stated my own hypothesis in his writings at the time. I can show, I mean, I'd have to find the quotes for you and we might have time I could show. Uh, Anna Freud was close to her father and, and admired her admired him very much and was responsible, for example, for making those letters delete the reference to the grandfather being a pervert. Um, but I don't know if her father was... Po- to the ex- Look, there's a lot of complicated biographical interpretation of that relationship. As whether some people say it was positive and strong, and I lean toward that, but there's another report saying that it was a kind of incestuous relationship based on the fact that Sigmund Freud psychoanalyzed his own daughter. Uh, let, let me explain. In psychoanalysis, you can't become a psychoanalyst unless you go through your training period, which involves you being psychoanalyzed by an older psychoanalyst. It has always been the tradition that that older psychoanalyst not be a member of your family. Um, the reason being, of course, in classical psychoanalysis that the Oedipus complex is about the child, the early, you know, the childhood relationship of a sexual kind with both parents. Freud made an exception to that rule with respect to his daughter, Anna. And so he was her training analyst. So it's a, you can see it's not an obvious um, call. But as far as I know, she was not anything like a militant atheist, and certainly consciously she respected her father and defended him and admired him. And therefore, she should follow in the natural model of being sort of like her father, but not more like the John Stuart Mill. Well, when she, di- when she died, um, just before she died, and she was crippled, She'd saved this uh, raincoat, tattered old raincoat, and every day, you know, her nurse would take her out, and she lived in London at the time, to, where Freud ended his life, at this pond, she'd be wrapped in that raincoat that she'd saved for like 40, 50 years. Yes. It was her father's? Yes. I read that, and Freud is Wrong, which is a very interesting book. I'm sure you read it. And uh, it was so, it was really very, very... Moving. She, she was deeply attached to him, and the question of the nature of that attachment is what people yeah, but argue about. The th- but the thing is, you know, it's. Yeah, it, I'm sorry. Yeah, but I'll, I'll show you the stuff on Kierkegaard later if you would like to. I just have uh, a couple of questions. You spoke earlier about 
um, reaffirming a relationship with children in the sense that if you are a father but you are not intricately involved in a child's life, yet at the same time you can be intricately involved in other people's lives and be a prolific speaker and an enthusiast and uplifting person to other people, how can you relate that to your own children and you find it hard to be able to do that? How can you do that? Tough one, huh? Uh, I'm going to give some very unpsychological comment on that. Uh, the, the man should have enough humility to listen to his wife. Say no more. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I hope that I, I, I hope I didn't. <laughs> anyway, that because it's uh, that she'll know. She'll know, and and he won't want to listen. And. He's gonna have. He's gonna have to. Now she has to not be too naggy and all of that. We know. Okay, but but he's got to listen. <laughs> yes, of all the models that you gave um, with reference to um, the atheist, um, um, Albert Ellis. Why do you think that he made it and he toughed it out after he had the. Um, the womanizing father. How did, where did his strength come from? Where did his strength come from if he had all of these things against him as a child, with his mother not being um, Very emotionally there, right? dysfunctional, and his father being um, absent? First of all, um, partly I don't know. Partly I would propose that some children have a capacity for they don't know that certain, they have a certain capacity for resilience, for uh, a certain kind of strength. And the third thing was his brother. He was, the two of them were very bonded and remain, have remained so throughout their lives. They formed a little team. So he had someone to talk to and to work with. But I would say it's partly, uh, I don't know, partly he probably had the temperament of this kind of toughness of a person that some people have, that they can deal with certain kinds of stresses and strains better than others. Um, and partly he had his brother. So, so you believe that it's fundamentally maybe from, from conception? Some of the, the temperament aspect, part of Temperament can give you a, a, a it, depending upon what it is you're trying to do, your temperament can help you or not. I don't think Albert Ellis would have made a good artist or poet. Mm. He probably wasn't sensitive enough for that, but he was, a, a, you know, that's, that's, that's another capacity, and he didn't have that temperament, and if he had, he might have collapsed under the absence of social support. But he, he had a temperament that allowed him, for whatever reason, to be... Uh, strong, and, as well as um, the support from his father and, I mean, from his uh, brother. Understand. That's the best I can guess. And this is why biography eventually always has certain elements. We have to remember in all lives, there are those points where there's freedom. There's points where you decide to choose your understanding of your father as an SOB instead of choosing to say, I will find a way to find something better to replace him with. There are always times when you have some freedom, and that's a mysterious component in these as well. Thank so I'm not being a total determinist. I'm talking about things that push you in certain directions. It, nevertheless, 
the person can resist that push given certain other factors. Thank you very much.